Welcome to Devotions in the Deep End. I'm Cam Buchanan, and this is a carefully crafted devotional journey through the New Testament. Let's venture into deeper water as we consider what it means to follow Jesus in the world we live in now. Welcome back to Devotions in the Deep End. We are still working our way through the Sermon on the Mount, and the current theme that we're exploring right now is some examples of personal devotion that Jesus is speaking into. Sometimes these are known from ancient circles as acts of righteousness. In the last two episodes, we looked at the first couple of examples, remembering the poor and personal prayer. In this episode, we will look at some additional thoughts from Jesus on the subject of prayer and one final example of devotion. Let's read from two passages to get us started. We'll start with Luke chapter 11, verses 5 to 13. Then Jesus said to them, Suppose you have a friend, and you go to him at midnight and say, Friend, lend me three loaves of bread. A friend of mine on a journey has come to me, and I have no food to offer him. And suppose the one inside answers, Don't bother me. The door is already locked, and my children and I are in bed. I can't get up and give you anything. I tell you, even though he will not get up and give you the bread because of friendship, yet because of your shameless audacity, he will surely get up and give you as much as you need. So I say to you, ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and the door will be opened to you. For everyone who asks, receives. The one who seeks, finds. And to the one who knocks, the door will be opened. Which of you fathers, if your son asks for a fish, will give him a snake instead? Or if he asks for an egg, will you give him a scorpion? If you then, though you are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father in heaven give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? Now, two verses in Matthew chapter 6, verses 14 to 15. For if you forgive others when they sin against you, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their sins, your Father will not forgive your sins. Jesus has been teaching extensively on prayer at this time, and it makes sense that he would put so much time into it because this is a pretty important practice for Christians. Remember that this teaching has been presented to us in two different ways. Matthew includes it in the Sermon on the Mount, which is a collection of Jesus' teachings that would have taken a whole lot longer to deliver than what we read on paper in just three chapters. Luke's version of the story indicates that in amongst Jesus' teaching, the disciples appear to have initiated the teaching by requesting an object lesson on how to do this well. If you're wondering which account is the accurate one, there is plenty of evidence to be able to confidently state that it's actually both of them. I say this because neither of the stories presented to us will have captured everything Jesus said on the subject, but have documented the things they believe were the things pertinent to their audiences. That's why it's a helpful journey to explore both accounts. We know that Jesus has already provided a template or a framework for prayer. And now he offers some extra thoughts about our attitude as we engage in this important practice. The first thought is this. Be somewhat audacious in your prayer. Jesus offers a quick parable to make this point. 
and I'm going to make it a little more pertinent to our time with a localised version. Imagine this. It's midnight on a cold winter's night in your neighbourhood, and you hear something outside that sounds like a car, but there is a second noise with it which you can't quite make out. As you peer out the window, you recognise that it's a car with a flat tyre. The driver is clearly a young parent with a child asleep in the back of the car, and they are not overly confident with the situation at hand. They saw your light on in the house, and so they pulled up out the front and knocked on your door, hoping that you might know what to do. Well, thankfully you do, and they have an inflated spare tyre and a jack available for the vehicle. But neither they nor yourself have the correct wheel brace to get the old wheel off. By now, it's getting a bit tense with the child in the back seat waking up and starting to cry, and it's all just getting stressful and messy. But then you suddenly realise that the neighbour next door has the same vehicle and should have the wheel brace that you need. But given the time, the house is in darkness. So what do you do? Well, you can wallow in your stress and decide not to bother anyone, or you can be audacious and knock on the neighbour's door and keep knocking till they get out of bed and answer. It might be hard to do and it might seem a little bit inconvenient, but the minor inconvenience now with a definite outcome is surely a lesser problem than waiting out there all night in distress, right? Jesus is saying something pretty special here. Your needs and the things that weigh on you are important to God, and he will meet you where you are at if you have the audacity to ask him. As believers, we can be too polite with God. He is hallowed, and it's good to remember that. But as our Father, He isn't hostile to us, and He will give us an open ear. This mattered to the immediate audience of Jesus, where it was taboo to even mention God's name, let alone get close, personal, and audacious, like Jesus was saying. This mattered to Luke's readers, because pagan gods were understood to be appeased. You didn't ask them for anything without doing all you could to make sure they weren't angry with you. Jesus says all of that gets left at the door when you engage with his Father in a deeper and intentional way. Have the audacity to ask and to bring the needs of your heart before God. And in particular, we are invited to audaciously ask for the Holy Spirit. We will flesh this out in a future episode, but this is essentially an invitation to ask for the help, the wisdom, the insight, the leading, and even the power of God's Spirit in our lives. This is an audacious thing to receive, but disciples are invited to audaciously ask for it. Second, be confident in God's Father heart. Jesus makes a very human comparison here. All you dads in the audience, if your child asks you for something to eat, you'll give it to them, right? You won't mock them for their request or give them something harmful instead, will you? It's the same with God, too. The Old Testament shows us this. Jeremiah chapter 29.11 states that God had plans of prosperity, of hope, and a sense of future for his people and he had no plans or desires of harm towards them in any way. The holy God, once thought inaccessible by some, is in fact standing by like a good father towards those who come to him through Christ. 
Those who answer the call to become a disciple of Jesus actually enter a new arrangement and reality through the power of the Holy Spirit. And Romans chapter 8 verses 14 to 17 shows us how that works. This is what it says. Those who are led by the Spirit of God are the children of God. The Spirit you received does not make you slaves so that you live in fear again. Rather, the Spirit you received brought about your adoption to sonship. And by Him we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit Himself testifies with our spirit that we are God's children. Now, if we are children, then we are heirs, heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ. If indeed we share in his sufferings in order that we may also share in his glory. Look at all the fatherly ideas and privileges that are spoken of all through that passage. Through the power of the Spirit, we become children. We are adopted into sonship. We are not a slave to God with him as our oppressive overseer, but we are a child and an heir. We are someone with an inheritance yet to come as we hold firm in the tough things of life. We are privileged children of God through Christ, and he is our good heavenly father. And we can be fully confident in that as we pray to him. And then Jesus gives us something big to consider. We must be forgiving. In the last episode, we explored the Lord's Prayer. In that prayer framework was this line, Forgive us our debts as we forgive those who sin against us. Even as we pray, we find that the journey of forgiveness goes in all directions. In God's presence, we are forgiven. And in that sacred place, we forgive others too. It should be said that in such a sacred space, both of these should be deeply profound ideas. God's forgiveness means never holding that sin against us again, and our forgiveness to others should follow suit. But after this prayer framework, Matthew's account offers an even stronger statement, which is what we've just read a little earlier. Apparently, we can ask for forgiveness from the Lord all we want, but if the Holy Spirit shows us a situation where we are holding on to bitterness or unforgiveness towards another person, and we ignore that, then we will not get to that state of forgiveness before God. This is not because God can't forgive us. It is because we cannot receive it if we won't extend it to others. The theologian Michael Green writes this, if we are to open our hands to receive his gracious pardon, we cannot keep our fists tightly clenched against those who have wronged us. Too many times our prayers are nullified because there is someone out there that we think we cannot forgive. We can forgive that person, and we must, if we hope ourselves to receive the daily renewing forgiveness of God. For he cannot and he will not pardon the impenitent, including those who nurse grievances against others. It is an impossibility, while the condition of forgiveness, repentance, has not been met. Think about that. Forgiveness follows our repentance. The unwillingness to forgive is in fact us holding onto our sin instead of repenting from it and surrendering to God. To pray, forgive me, while not forgiving others is to essentially say, remove the guilt of my sin from me, 
but I'm going to continue to walk in it anyway. To forgive others is part of our own repentance. And as a result, we can walk away from those times of prayer in full confidence of forgiveness received if we forgive others. Now, let's read on with one last act of righteousness that Jesus speaks into here. This is found in Matthew chapter 6, verses 16 to 18. When you fast, do not look somber as the hypocrites do, for they disfigure their faces to show others they are fasting. Truly, I tell you, they have received their reward in full. But when you fast, put oil on your head and wash your face, so that it will not be obvious to others that you are fasting, but only to your Father, who is unseen. And your Father, who sees what is done in secret, will reward you. We looked at the subject of fasting way back in episode 8, and I'm going to remind you of what we learned back then. Fasting was a very much accepted form of religious devotion in ancient Hebrew culture. It was prescribed as part of the Jewish festivals, in particular, the all-important Day of Atonement. In other Old Testament places, it was spoken of in the context of a repentant people casting off outer pleasures in order to get right with God. In the first century world Jesus was in, the Pharisees got pretty zealous with it and fasted every Monday and Thursday, and they encouraged those they taught to do the same thing. In the first century, fasting had come to symbolize a sense of personal dissatisfaction with oneself and served as a constant reminder of personal guilt and the seeking of divine forgiveness. In good Hebrew form, even John the Baptist taught his followers to observe the practice of fasting as a key element of their devotion and display of repentance. But we learned back then that Jesus did not do this. On any given Monday or Thursday, while the deeply religious were looking sad in the hope that God would honor their outward show of repentance, Jesus and his disciples would be at somebody's place eating and enjoying life. There was joy and a different spirit in those following Jesus as a result, to the point that people started asking hard questions, mainly about their master and the example he was setting for his disciples. Back then, the point Jesus made was that while the world around them was in mourning, hoping their demeanor was going to be suitable for the Messiah when he came, this was in fact unnecessary now, because the Messiah had in fact come. It was a time for celebration right now. But in that episode, we did also see that there would be a time where the bridegroom, Christ, would be taken away. This was an ominous pointer to the cross here, and the disciples would fast again. There are examples in the New Testament of disciples fasting for various reasons. In Acts chapter 9, the persecutor named Saul, who would one day become an apostle known as Paul, was shaken to his core in a deeply spiritual encounter with Jesus. And in his response, we see him eating nothing for three days. This is seen as an example of earnest grief and repentance as he desperately sought to make sense of what God was doing. At the end of those three days, he receives ministry from another man of God, and he eats after that, having known his need has been met. In Acts chapter 13, Paul and Barnabas are commissioned to their first missionary journey after the church went through a time of worship and fasting. And this trend continues in Acts chapter 14, where these same two men appointed and commissioned elders in various villages, again after a time of prayer and fasting. 
So there is valid reason for modern Christians to consider the act of fasting and what it might even achieve in various settings, both in personal life as well as the church. There is also plenty of good reason for some people listening to me now to not fast and know that Jesus will be okay with that. If you are a diabetic or have other health issues, fasting might not be good for you. It's only something to do if you feel safe enough to do so, and even getting a medical opinion for your needs might be advisable. But if this is something you feel is good and safe to add to your devotional practices, then Jesus has some insights for you in this passage. First, like all the other devotional practices, nobody needs to know about it. Again, this was the Pharisaic problem. Every Monday and Thursday, you knew exactly who was fasting in your local Jewish neighborhood because they had the worst demeanor. They were covered in ash and even put on a face that made them look like they were in physical pain. Whether there was any real sense of repentance, grief, desperation or seeking going on was really anyone's guess, but they certainly looked the part. But again, Jesus questions their motives and sincerity by using that same word he's used before hypocrite, actors in a dramatic pantomime. Why? Because in his estimation, bearing in mind he's God in the flesh and therefore qualified to judge these things, these religious folk had all the moves and had all the admiration of the people, but they had nothing going on inside that is anywhere near what they were portraying to the crowd. So friend, if and when you fast, don't be like these people. Don't let others know what you're doing. Be discreet. Wash your face. Present yourself well. Wear a smile where it's appropriate. Do your best to not draw attention to your actions. And again, note that like giving and like prayer, God is seeing you in your private fast, and he will reward you. Let's now complete this episode with a word of prayer. Jesus, thank you for your invitation to pray in such a profound way. Thank you for the framework you've given and for your insights on how I can engage with the Heavenly Father. Help me to lean into this knowledge of God as my good Father. Help me to be audacious in prayer and to understand the Father's heart towards me as His child, for that is my spiritual reality through you. Help me to be audacious enough to even ask, for the Spirit when I need Him. And help me to forgive, for I now know that this is vital to my own forgiveness also. I open my hands to your forgiveness, and I keep them open, knowing that I have let go of the offenses of others against me as I do this. And finally, give me wisdom if you're calling me to fast. Help me to do this in a healthy way, and in a way that draws your blessing instead of others' admiration. Amen. Thanks for tuning in. To stay in touch, like our Devotions in the Deep End Facebook page and subscribe on Spotify or wherever you listen to your podcasts. I look forward to catching up next time.